and welcome to Power Problems, a podcast from the Cato Institute, where we offer a skeptical take on U.S. foreign policy and discuss some of today's big questions in international security with guests from across the political spectrum. I'm Trevor Thrall, a senior fellow here at the Cato Institute. And I'm Emma Ashford, a research fellow at Cato. When it comes to U.S. influence around the world, we often think of the military. But in recent years, economic sanctions have played a growing role in American diplomacy, from Russia to Iran and North Korea. That growth has come with problems of its own. Some experts have questioned whether sanctions really work. Others have pointed to their humanitarian impact, and still others worry that the overuse of sanctions will undermine them as a tool for future policymakers. Joining us today to discuss these issues is Elizabeth Rosenberg, Director of the Energy, Economics, and Security Program at the Center for New American Security. Liz was also previously a senior advisor at the Treasury Department, working on sanctions policy from inside the Obama administration. So she brings a wealth of experience to this topic. Liz, thanks for joining us on the podcast. Glad to be here with you. As usual, let's start with a brief roundup of some of the big news from the last week. Uh, The Saudi crisis, of course, continues to escalate and burble along since we last talked to you all. Uh, The killing of the journalist Jamal Khashoggi has produced something uh, odd, even unthinkable in DC, and that is widespread and open criticism of the US-Saudi relationship. Um, But let's talk here for a minute about the economic ramifications. Congress is considering sanctions on uh, Saudi leadership, uh, but the Saudis have hinted that they might... um, seek to spike oil prices in retaliation. Who's bluffing? The US, the Saudis, both? Should we be worried about the impact on the market? This is something to watch very carefully. Of course, it's an enormously, Saudi Arabia is an enormously significant producer of oil. It's a really important global economic actor. But if they commit an own goal, cutting off their nose to spite their face by way of reacting to this affair and how it continues to play out, it would have really serious consequences for them domestically. This is already an investment deterrent, the concern around this. And to do something more forceful, having anything to do with supply of oil in the market would be really damaging for them economically. Oh, absolutely. Maybe it's just because I'm writing a book on oil and foreign policy <laughs> at the moment. But I'm, you know, the, all the talk about the oil weapon is is really a way to just ignore the question of interdependence, right? So you can only, as an oil producer or a gas producer, you can only shut off the supplies to someone else if you're okay with the fact that you don't get your revenue in return. And for a lot of petrostates, I'd say for most petrostates, that is absolutely not the case. So as you say, there's big domestic implications for the Saudis in cutting that off. If they do that, they're spiking the price too. It has this price impact, which means that they're giving more hard currency to their competitors, their direct competitors, including the United States, which really undermines the whole point of what they'd be trying to do and sending that shock. Yeah, this this one sort of looks to me like like Trump and the Saudis both holding guns to their own heads and threatening sanctions. And, you know, Trump, the Congress trying to cut off, you know, arms sales that Trump thinks is going to hurt the U.S. And then Saudis sort of, you know, threatening to spike oil prices, which is going to kill them. It's a weird, it's kind of a weird situation. It seems like the Saudis would be best off if they would just sort of own up and move on. Well, we'll see if cooler heads prevail, right? And so there was a little bit of walking back from those comments that were initially made uh, a week ago now, just uh, the weekend before this past one, um, where these uh, threats really rippled through the market and people were trying to gauge how to understand that risk in pricing. And now in that time, Saudi has come forward and uh, and made clear that it uh, has a view of what happened there, acknowledging that uh, Khashoggi, in fact, died in the consulate. And so if cooler heads prevail, then we'll have a tamping down of economic impact. 
the political consequences still keep playing out? Yeah, that's really the question, isn't it? Will cooler heads prevail inside Saudi Arabia? And, you know, you mentioned investment earlier. And so for me, um, you know, there's been this big investment um, sort of drop off or at least drop off in participation in the investment conference since the merger of Jamal Khashoggi. But if you look at sort of the data from the last year, you also see the Saudis have suffered a real decline in foreign direct investment. Basically, since Mohammed bin Salman locked all those princes up in the Ritz-Carlton and Riyadh, businesses have been a little spooked about whether they should invest there. So the it's not clear to me that the Saudis will see this as an obstacle and suddenly change their ways or because they didn't do it before. Well, usually, you know, eventually money talks. But the other thing that I wonder with, with Saudi Arabia and places like that is that, you know, sure, the money talks up to the point where regime security begins. And, and, and I don't follow Saudi Arabia closely enough to know why kill this guy? Like, the, the, you know, the, obviously he was, you know, bucking the the you know their views of human rights and other things but but come on one guy why now and and so i worry that you know that the money thing isn't going to be as uh, important to them as continuing to tamp down on whatever kind of opposition is burbling. And so, but this is sort of a wait and see, I guess. So, all right, uh, on to another topic here. Um, Foreign Affairs has a great new issue out, uh, if you're looking for something to read, uh, a roundtable debating um, nuclear weapons. And uh, our own Cato colleague, John Mueller, has a, an article in it arguing, you know, for all the, the huff and puff that nuclear weapons aren't as dangerous as most people think. Um, but he's, uh, as usual, uh, relatively alone on this on this issue. Uh, there's a lot of, of debate now about the growing dangers of nuclear weapons. Uh, what do you guys think? Well, he certainly is alone in that issue. And amongst the community of professional foreign policy thinkers, he's also standing uh, in, a, in a pretty small uh, pretty small island uh, in this perspective, which isn't to say that everyone else is alarmist about the issue, but certainly there's an array of concerns about the threat and concern that nuclear weapons pose and what difficult, threatening spin-out uh, there could be because, in fact, there's not a lot of strategy or a need for an updated strategy, not just in the United States with uh, regard to how it deals with its nuclear arsenal, uh, but also in other countries here. Think about China and how it may play in a growing great power competition. You know, the the great thing about working with John Mueller is that he takes these stances that just on the face of them, they just seem so absurd, right? But then you actually read it through it and you think about it and you're like, oh, that's interesting. I never thought of it that way. And, you know, even if you don't agree with it, it really forces you to think of it. And so I think the point that he makes in this article that I kind of like is that we should be questioning whether nuclear alarmism is a problem. If you look at all the developments that have happened over the last couple of years, I think mostly with Trump coming into power and everybody suddenly freaked out about Trump having his finger on the nuclear button, you know, the doomsday clock got moved closer to midnight. John's point is, well, nuclear weapons haven't been used before now. Maybe they're not as dangerous as we think. And I, I'm not sure I agree with him on that. I probably don't agree with him on that. But it's an interesting question. Yeah, I, I I happen to agree probably more with him than most people do. Although where I disagree with him is about their their dampening effect on on interstate conflict. He really dismisses the idea that they've had a dampening effect on interstate conflict since World War II, and I I actually trust that it has had such a thing. Uh, but but where I agree a lot with him is about how much alarmism there is around this topic and and the implications that uh, policy implications that that come from that alarmism, which have included wars of unnecessary aggression against other places and uh, sometimes to me counterproductive saber rattling in other areas. Um, and 
I do think that there are reasons to be worried afresh, though, about the nuclear situation, if you will. Um, you know, ten rising tensions with Russia never makes things easy. You know, ripping up the ABM treaty and now the INF treaty. You know, to me that a lot of the stability of the Cold War sort of um, came about because the rules of the road and the and the norms kind of sort of developed over time. And and you know whether it was the best way to do things, period or not, it was predictable. And I think we're entering a period of less predictable behavior, and that's always unnerving, especially when you talk about nuclear weapons. Um, you know, I, I think we could resolve a lot of this, though, if, if the United States would update its nuclear posture and and its strategy. And instead of sort of being coy about when we'll use nuclear weapons, well, will cyber or these other threats, you know, encourage us to use nuclear weapons, just, just have a no first use pledge like China does. I think that would be very helpful. You got to admit, though, it's pretty much the worst possible time to be having an in-depth discussion about the US nuclear posture. Um, you know, we want to talk about, you know, should we be worried about Russia? Should we be postured more towards them? Or should it actually be China we're worried about? And then we've got Donald Trump tweeting about it. So it is pretty much the worst possible time to be having this discussion. Just to play devil's advocate for a second, I think one of the things that uh, this president and his provocative, even incendiary or bellicose policies has done is to uh, shake up much of the conventional thinking. And so you're discussing the perspective of your colleague here, who um, you may not agree, but I really appreciate the focus on, let's focus on empirics. Let's get down to really understanding our assumptions. And for any provocative voice and whatever, wherever they are on the spectrum to encourage us to really get get deep into those assumptions uh, in the professional foreign policy uh, field, that's really valuable right now. It's it makes me nervous, as you're saying, but it's uh, it's also valuable. Absolutely, embrace the debate. I love it. All right, very good. All right. Speaking of Trump, um, it looks like his defense secretary is not his favorite person anymore. Might even be a Democrat, uh, Jim Mattis. Um, it looks like he's likely to go after the midterms. Um, what does that mean? Well, within the Defense Department and that uh, that establishment, because Mattis himself has come out of a career of service and uh, with a, a deep background and relationships uh, in that community, uh, it may be quite likely that his legacy, his connections, his viewpoint remains a, a forward posture of the department going forward. So whoever comes next to uh, to replace him, uh, whenever that may be, uh, may feature some continuity from some of the thinking and the plans that have been uh, put in place in the last couple of years. That's interesting, um, particularly because if somebody comes in, one of the things that Mattis has been very effective at is basically slow rolling directives from the White Yes, and that's obviously why Trump is increasingly unhappy with him. But you have to wonder if a successor would be somebody like another retired general or someone that would continue that policy of, of just standing in the way of some of these more disruptive directives from the White House, or whether it's going to be somebody more political um, who will buckle down and just do whatever the Trump White House wants. That's a really different path, and I don't know which way it's going to go. Yeah, I, I mean, you, you've already seen now just the last couple of days pushback on the Hill. Don't get rid of him. He's we like him. Just you know, there's a lot of change you know coming up. I think the Joint Chiefs of Staff chairs you know leaving. Dunford's leaving soon. We have other people leaving from senior posts soon. And so I think stability is sort of the watchword for a lot of people in Congress here. But my guess is that 
you know, when Trump first came in, there was nobody on the Trump bench to hire to do most of these jobs. So he was having to put people in place that I don't think he knew ahead of time whether he was going to like them or not very much. Um, he didn't know Mattis from a hole in the ground. Um, two years in though, you know, and having had time to sort of survey the field, I, I think it's much more likely that if Mattis does go, he replaces him with somebody much more Trumpy. And, um, you know, that, that who knows where that goes. So. We'll see. Okay. Surprise time, Liz. Surprise question of the day. Uh, tell our listeners, if you would, uh, what got you interested in a career in international affairs? Was there a great book, a professor? Uh, what was it? Uh, so this happened. This uh, light bulb went on for me when I was in high school. I come from a really small um, cow town, if you will, in northern New England, and I was eager to get out and try something different. And one opportunity that I was aware of was to become a Senate page. So I applied and uh, was selected. <clears throat> so I headed to Washington to be a page, which at that time, pre-internet, more years ago than I'll uh, care to recount right now. Uh, it was a a really cool job where you got a ton of firsthand interaction with the members of Congress and with their staff. And uh, moving around those bills, being a part of uh, the conversation, hearing the policy committee luncheon debates, it was uh, a great awakening for me about what I was really interested in and wanted to make a career out of. Awesome. Good stuff. Yeah. Personal experience. I, I, we've asked this question maybe 15 times now. And and I would say, I, I actually thought when we started this question, it was going to be people taking a class or reading a book. Or I don't know. But it turns out personal experiences are the are, seem to be the number one cause of being interested in international affairs, which is fascinating to me. Yeah, fantastic. It makes me really focused as a supervisor and mentor to try and create those opportunities for young people. And so, it's a direct policy implication yeah, of your story. Yeah, <laughs> to launch them on to, to be good thinkers and decision makers in the future. Fantastic. All right, let's 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 get to our big topic of the day. Uh, we have actually talked about sanctions a fair amount on power problems in large part because they seem to be playing an ever larger role in US foreign policy uh, since at least the start of the Obama administration, whether Iran, Russia, North Korea, maybe now even Saudi Arabia. Uh, they're always part of the conversation. Uh, but let's start with a little bit of background. Why are sanctions so popular these days, Liz? And what kind of sanctions do we use? And what are we trying to do with them? Well, other people have uh, offered various theories on this. But where I come down is that one of the reasons why they're so popular is because they seem to have a uh, forceful um, impact in a space between uh, diplomacy and military action. And arguably, that's an enormous spectrum. There's lots of tools there. And that discounts the value of other things like um, development, uh, in intelligence interaction, uh, other kinds of engagement internationally. But sanctions uh, have, pack a bit more punch than just a diplomatic measure, uh, and they are perceived to be less expensive uh, than military action. And so because of that, there's been this real rush to this policy tool recently. And I think um, in the short-term effect, policymakers can really like that they have this disruptive financial effect. It has painful economic consequences. And so if your goal is in some way uh, to, to be punitive and to really hurt someone because you are angry or really disapprove of what they're doing, then this really scratches that itch. I think that might also be in part why Congress is so sanctions trigger happy. Lots of people suggest that theory. 
I, I'm I'm there too. I think there's definitely a constituency and a constituency in Congress that's uh, keen on sanctions for that reason. But it would be unfair, of course, to suggest that that describes everyone in Congress. There are uh, many sanctions advocates who are staunch multilateralists and who have done the gone gone to extraordinary uh, lengths to write into their legislation the necessity of coordinating with other countries. That's not something you see generally in a foreign policy bill or an economic bill coming out of Congress. Okay. So, but, you know, punishment, it, you know, if it causes financial pain, that that can, that works sort of automatically. We want to hurt someone. Um, but one of the more common criticisms that you hear about sanctions is that they don't work for coercion, which is, I think, one of the very common goals to which sanctions are put. Um, but but that might be uh, too simple a way to look at it, to say they don't work, they do work. What I assume, given your background, you believe that they work at least sometimes. Um, how do they work? Why are they useful? Well, I do think that they have utility sometimes. Uh, I also think that there are enormous uh, vulnerabilities and long-term consequences that are pretty much uh, – not they haven't been audited. People don't really understand how expensive uh, it will be, uh, both in terms of economic factors, credibility, international relationships. So, so yes, I'm on board, but I have made um, a theme of my public writing and speaking uh, caution about how to use them and not to overuse them. Uh, but are they useful? I want to remember here that that. Particular, a particular statement where people come at sanctions and say they're not useful was a reality that was so well learned from the Iraq experience that it became this, um, you know, broadly accepted uh, truth about uh, foreign policy and the use of this tool. Whereas I think that's pretty uh, lazy and superficial analysis, and it ignores the enormous modifications, this financialization of the tool that has occurred more recently. And in fact, among people who've looked at them in the last um, decade, five to 10 years, I think there's the, the truth, the broadly accepted truth is that, in fact, they have worked in some important ways. People think about the Iran example, having compelled Iran to enter into negotiations, whatever you think of what happened after that, there was real utility in in that kind of uh, economic leverage that was delivered from those sanctions. You know, it's fascinating, actually, you mentioning the Iraq case, because the article that sort of started that move away from sanctions was our own John Mueller, who at the time, no one was making this argument. He wrote an article in Foreign Affairs called Sanctions of Mass Destruction. And it was basically about how the use of these comprehensive sanctions on Iraq in the 1990s was as damaging as a war. It, you know, people couldn't get medicine, they couldn't get food, the Iraqi people basically starved as a result. But you're right, that's, that is different now. We no longer use those kind of sanctions at all. Now we use these very narrowly targeted financial measures. And I assume given you're talking about the Iranian case, you think that was what was particularly successful? Well, that plus the broad multilateralism that existed. So it wasn't just the United States, but these other major economies, the global major economies in close coordination to uh, have these targeted economic effects. And by the way, I just want to say, you know, that lesson about the uh, Iraq and um, the humanitarian effects, it was so – it was really fair criticism and so well learned that it changed fundamentally the way this tool has been used in foreign policy. 
Yeah, as, as I think it should. The, one of the questions I have about the Iran case, and I, I've sort of just as a civilian who doesn't follow sanctions very closely, uh, thought of it as a uh, at least a partially successful case of sanctions use. Um, but then maybe I don't say fully just because I'm not sure if it was the sanctions or the fact that so many of the major powers of the world agreed on them and sort of just made the writing on the wall very clear that it wasn't how much pressure the sanctions were really putting, but it was sort of the writing on the wall that like, well, we're just not going to stop bothering you until you do what we want. And so you could say the sanctions had some, definitely a role there because if they weren't doing anything, I guess Iran could have just said, so what? But I, I, what do you think? Is it? Well, so maybe you credit their economic force in uh, making Iran uh, decide that it had to come and negotiate to get economic relief. Or, and this is kind of along the lines of what you were just saying, maybe you credit the value that they have for coalition building and gathering uh, on the same side all of the major global uh, political leaders. And that is a really formidable, um, it's a brick wall you know, that Iran was facing. There's really no prospect for strong economic growth or for engaging internationally facing that strong coalition of nations. And as you know, as you pointed out a while ago, the sanctions aren't costless. So those that is a variety of international states, not just saying we're going to impose sanctions on Iran, but saying we are willing to hurt our own economies to do so because this is important to us. So there's a signaling function there as well. Right. So a convening. So that's interesting because I hadn't really thought of the sanctions tool as being a convening function as well as the signaling function. So that's a, that's an interesting one-two combo. I like that. I've learned something here. That's fantastic. Okay. So so let's let's take it a step further. Um, the Trump administration seems to have put the, the, the sanctions tool on steroids relative to the Obama administration's. Um, tell us a little bit about the Trump administration's approach um, because th they're using them a lot and I know you've written about using things too much. So uh, where, where do you see things here? Right. A lot was probably an, an understatement. <laughs> Let's call it a maximum pressure sanctions strategy. And uh, it's not just in one program. It's been in intensive across a whole array of programs. Right now, North Korea sanctions are in a pause mode, of course, uh, but uh, Iran is uh, hot and heavy. Uh, even before we get to the November 5th uh, deadline imposition, re-imposition of a bunch of sanctions, and I will get to that in a second, but uh, across other programs too, general WMD, narco trafficking, human rights sanctions. If you weren't sure this administration cared about human rights, then you haven't been watching sanctions, which have been rolled out on a number of occasions against human rights abusers, destabilization, uh, corruption. It goes on and on. And it's pretty impressive to see that this energy and this uh, this pace, this incredibly rapid pace is going. They're sustaining this across all of these programs from a very small agency in the government. It's it's pretty incredible what they're doing. Uh, I'm interested to know your opinion on this because there's been some talk that what the Trump administration is doing is basically they they sort of went into to OFAC, that's the, the small agency that manages this, and they basically took a bunch of things that the Obama administration left on the shelf imposed them. So sanctions that the Obama administration had considered imposing for, for human rights on Russia for election meddling. And the Trump administration just says, that sounds good. We'll impose it. Do you think that's what's going on? Well, at any given time, 
any administration has an options memo about things that they could turn to if they need them. And realistically, it's dozens and dozens of options memos. And you're balancing other considerations when you're thinking about which one to choose. Is it the right pairing with a a military or a a political messaging or diplomatic messaging strategy you want to roll out? Um, Would it work and not do any damage to uh, a specific bilateral political relationship, et cetera? So when this administration came in, they definitely looked at those those memos on the shelf, those options papers on the shelf and said, let's do it and pulled them all down and rolled them all out. And uh, they're working on more and more and more. And so uh, there may have been reasons why people considered and then did not impose some of those sanctions previously. And it's not that they're, it doesn't appear to me that their predisposition here is throw everything out there, or rather roll everything out that was on the shelf. But there's a, um, a much greater willingness to uh, to go ahead and do that. It's become this preeminent form foreign policy tool, which means you got to use everything in the in the pipeline. So the interesting thing to me about that, I mean, a couple of things. One is that uh, it seems like it was shoot first and ask questions about whether the conditions are right for them to work later, you know. And the second thing that's interesting to me is that uh, the way I think of the way sanctions have typically been used over the last, say, 25 years is that first you get into a tiff, then you escalate it, then you warn people that sanctions are coming before something worse is coming, and then you do the same. And then, but 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 on all these broad things, I mean, there's no multilateralism, there's no sort of arc of the narrative. It doesn't seem like to me. So, is this really as scattershot as you just made it sound, or is someone in each of these cases in this tiny office? coming up with a a really good strategy for making them all work? Well, there are different ways to answer that. And I I think it depends on how diplomatic you want to be. But in fairness, uh, and just as a point of information, there are some much more limited cases where the the U.S. administration is working with international counterparts to impose certain sanctions. Um, The first one that comes to mind is working directly with Saudi Arabia on counterterrorism sanctions, which is uh, interesting. Remember, at this at this moment, political moment. Uh, But certainly there's been this embrace of multilateral sanctions and and really running full force with that. So if you want to be diplomatic and and maybe you think this is fair, then you'd say, well, that's just um, a, a really rapid execution of a strategy which if it were slow walked a bit more, it, you might see the strategy of build up, escalate, warn, et cetera. But this is on such a compressed time frame that for everyone else in the world conditioned to expect longer timelines for implementation and enforcement, this just looks like scattershot, you know, just like a, just an, a barrage all at the same time. I have nothing against moving fast. And normally, you know, when you're looking at government, people complain about things going too slow. I, I'm usually on the other side. I, 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 Some things you want fast, but like a lot of government things, I want to be slow because we do too many things and we should probably do fewer. But um, fast is okay. But but sometimes if your agenda is too packed, you don't, you don't pay enough attention to each one of them. So I, you know, and given to me how important that, that convening and, and sort of multilateral signaling is, I just, I guess that's something I would want to want to know more about. Um, okay. So, you know, big part of the reason we're talking about this when we are is that um, 
sanctions are going to hit the news big time. Uh, November 4th, 5th, uh, they're going to announce uh, and reimpose the um, oil-related sanctions on Iran uh, following the withdrawal from the JCPOA. And there are several, I think, interesting questions here. Um, first, the impact on the global oil markets. Um, right now, it looks like the administration is not going to issue waivers to countries that import Iranian oil, uh, including allies like Japan and India. And that that's going to have a big ripple effect on markets, yes? Yeah, and it already has uh, because an, uh, a good amount of that oil has been coming off as countries have been preparing for this implementation day, for this big day and uh, for enforcement actually, you know, at the point after which if countries are importing oil without a significant reduction exemption, they're going to get whacked. Yeah, and, and actually, you know, um, the Trump administration has been very clear that there will be no exemptions. Now, I'm fairly confident they'll probably climb down from that a little as we approach this deadline because for some countries, actually weaning themselves off that Iranian oil is really difficult. I mean, for some countries, this is a significant chunk of their oil imports. You know, the Indian economy, for example, very dependent on Iranian oil imports. Um, they have an election coming up next year. If the economy tanks because they can't get oil supplies, that has political ramifications. So there's all of these things in different countries, some of which are even US allies, that the Trump administration needs to consider when giving waivers. And it sounds like they're taking a very hard line on it. Yeah. And add to that the fact that alternative supplies aren't necessarily available to come on rapidly in a kind of one-for-one -one substitution. So Saudi Arabia is pumping as much as it ever has right now. They've claimed that they can get up, uh, they can tap that, that extra 2 million barrels for the market, but we know that that can't come uh, all at once and they may not be able to sustain it over a long period of time, which is it just adds to the difficulty I mean, you're pointing out about uh, countries purchasing Iranian oil and finding substitutes. And meanwhile, the price is ticking up. One of the it's, it's an interesting issue mentioning the Saudis because with the ongoing sort of crisis in U.S.-Saudi relations, there are some people saying, oh, well, we can't piss off the Saudis right now because if we do, well, then they won't increase their production to meet the lost Iranian production. But there's some serious doubts among, I think, very smart oil market observers about whether the Saudis can, or even if they ramp up production like they are ramping up production now, whether the market's already priced that in because they're worried that there's no more production there if there's a shortfall in the future. So it's not actually clear that for all Trump's demanding that the Saudis increase production to keep prices of, of gas low, it's not actually clear they can. And this is, this is not great for global markets. And even if they do, that takes money, uh, rather, that makes takes out production potential and spare capacity, which means that you are more and more and more vulnerable to any additional supply shock. Right. You can a, tell we've been worrying about this I for a while. I can see that, guys, because <laughs> we, we do have another colleague, Eugene Goltz, who's somewhat more sanguine about these kind of uh, disruptions uh, in the global market from any one country being a problem. So w I guess we're going to have a natural experiment here pretty soon. Um, let me ask a rookie question. Say Japan or India decides, you know what, we just need that, that good, good from Iran. We're going to keep doing it. What is getting whacked mean if they violate the sanctions? Well, if they don't get a significant reduction exemption, then the, the pivot point for these measures is that they will come down on the financial institution, so the bank, that is handling payment for that Iranian oil. Uh, to be sure, the sanctions can also 
come down, and I expect they would, on all of the other uh, corporate entities in that daisy chain of supply, which could mean the shipper, the refiner, uh, the port, the port operators, the flagging authority, the it just goes on and on. But the sanctions themselves, these authorities, uh, as written, pivot on that financial institution. And given that these are some really sizable financial institutions globally, that's very meaningful. That sounds scary. But yet, every time we have a global sanctions sort of scenario, we almost inevitably act too is the sanctions are slipping. Their people are starting to work around them. Um, the, uh, come on, our allies are some pretty crafty folks. Uh, they're not stupid. They know this is coming. They know how the global financial markets work and so on and so forth. Don't they have plans to get around this if they want to eventually? Well, because they know it's coming, they've taken the steps they have to back out of Iranian oil. So South Korea and Japan, even in in a, it's a difficult it's a very difficult position for them being so import dependent, but they nevertheless have backed away from it uh, and had um, intensive conversations with U.S. authorities to explain how challenging this is for them to seek alternatives. There's even been a, a move in, certainly in South Korea, I'm not sure so much in Japan, but about whether they may actually move back towards nuclear just because this is so difficult for them in that context. Um, but it's not really the the Asian allies that I think are the interesting ones if we're going to talk about like circumventing the sanctions. It's what's going on in Europe, right? So the Europeans have actually announced that they're going to put together this um, this payment vehicle, basically creating a financial institution that they say isn't exposed to US markets and it'll let them pay for Iranian oil so they don't have to abide by these sanctions. Um, I, I'm really interested to know whether you think that's a feasible way of getting around these sanctions or not. So just wrote a piece on the special purpose vehicle in which I, I'll summarize quickly to say it's not going to work now. But what I think it's really, why I think it's really meaningful is that what will work is the blueprint. And so it's not just Europe. Mogherini did announce that special purpose vehicle, um, but China also signed on. And there's a, this is kind of an interesting connection here because as a party to the JCPOA, uh, China and Russia um, would naturally pair with European economies who might not otherwise sign up with them for a, uh, a state-sponsored new payments system, if you will, uh, to try and get around U.S. jurisdiction. But the motivation is there. These powerful economies are there. The liquidity is there. My instinct is that some version of this is going to work at some point in the future, and it's not going to work once. It's going to work in multiple um, instances and iterations. So we'll get a whole bunch of these little ecosystems, if you will, outside of U.S. jurisdiction. This sounds to me like the ultimate fears of the champions of liberal international order, which is this is how the U.S. gives up its privileged seat at the table as the first mover. And China takes over and says, oh, let's let's do a different system. And oh, well, the yuan can be the base currency for all those transactions. That's no problem. And you know that way you won't have to you know be at the beck and call of the the once benevolent but now mad drunk with power you know hegemon over there. Well, I can't see the dollar giving up its uh, preeminent currency status at any point for quite a while. And the U.S. is still going to have this really strong preeminent position. However, 
even chipping away in um, marginal but meaningful ways at the uh, preeminence of of the currency uh, and of the U.S. payments architecture, uh, the the rails and gateways of the financial system that that denies the U.S. leverage. It has implications for economic leadership globally, and that's still quite significant. So even if we're not talking about a China-led economic order, we should all be very seriously considering what this means. Yeah, I think it's really interesting to compare what the Trump administration is doing now with how the Obama administration did this. Um, and actually, to some extent, the George W. Bush administration you know, in the run-up to the negotiation of the JCPOA. Um, because it's not the sanctions themselves. They're actually t- technically very similar. It's where they gave exemptions, where they allowed countries to continue importing oil because it was necessary and they were allies. It's it's how they worked with other countries to deal with their concerns so they didn't go around them and try and make these sort of alternative payment mechanisms. So there's a real difference. Um, I think the Trump administration is thinking about tomorrow. They're not thinking about, as you say, n- the next few years. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. So uh, we, we raised China. Um, you know, we've got China on the one hand sort of committed to perpetuating the JCPOA. Um, it probably has a little bit easier time, you know, shielding itself from the impact than, say, Europe. Um, but we're also in a trade war with China. So where, where does China go? What, what direction is their next move? I think China has many cards in its hand and uh, lots of ways to exert its interests here, um, maybe even win some of the battles in the short term uh, with regard to U.S. policy. So whether or not China uh, implements effectively U.S. sanctions vis-a-vis Iran um, gives China that's an enormous source of leverage for China, right? And so the United States I perceive, has made clear that implementation of its Iran sanctions agenda is not the first, maybe not even the second uh, top issue in its foreign policy um, list. I would put, you know, uh, trade concerns and North Korea ahead of Iran policy. And China knows very well what that means, which is to say, they don't have to implement. They don't have to abide by these by these rules as strenuously. And if they choose to do a little better, uh, then they have more leverage with the United States vis-a-vis these other policy issues. You know, it's it's interesting that I think just generally in the Trump administration, they are so dependent on China for a lot of things policy-wise. It's not just Iran, North Korea is the other obvious example here. Um, but at the same time, they're taking a very full frontal assault on trade tariffs, you know, not wanting to deal with the Chinese leadership. Again, there just doesn't seem to be any sort of balance between the different goals the US might have. The assumption seems to be that we can achieve everything through this pressure of, as you say, maximum sanctions strategy. So that that pivots to our last question, which is bottom line, are are these new Iran sanctions sanctions going to have any success. And and now that we've had this conversation, I'm wondering that, you know, the second round doesn't seem to have the convening and signaling power that the first do. My prediction based on my new model here is that they will not be as successful. But maybe there is some other factor that will drive success in this case. What, what do you think? Well, you have it exactly right, which is to say the criteria that you assign to the success has everything to do with whether you're going to check that box or not. And um, will they deliver economic impact? Yes. 
Have they have they already? Absolutely. We see that in the oil price. We certainly see that in uh, de- deterring and deferring investment. There's been scores of companies that have said that we're breaking off from ties with Iran. They're not going to do any more commerce, staying away from these sanctions. Uh, but we've lost the signaling, the coalition building that that's that that particular form of diplomatic and political um, capital here, uh, and. Whether this has the ultimate success of bringing Iran to a negotiation over a grand bargain, not just nuclear issues, but other issues, I am not holding my breath. I I can't see that happening with this set of, while economically painful, painful, this set of uh, nevertheless unsatisfactory measures to accomplish that goal. You know, if you also look at the, I guess, the sanctions literature, and I come at this from academia, so I'm more into the sort of academic literature on this, but there's a couple of other things that are missing about the Iran sanctions here. The first is that the fact that the Trump administration withdrew from the JCPOA really undermines the idea that we can negotiate and actually lift sanctions in exchange for something, right? Because they just said, yoink, you're not having that anymore. We're going to renegotiate the deal. That really undermines sanctions as a coercive tool in the future, I think. And so when the Trump administration is approaching this, it's also not clear what they want, right? So they they don't have the ability to credibly promise to lift the sanctions. And then they also don't really have a clear picture of what it is they're trying to coerce Iran to do because they have this list of demands that doesn't really have anything realistic on it. Um, maybe there is some other set of criteria internal to the White House that we don't know about. But right now, it's basically give up on your foreign policy. So it's not at all clear to me how they credibly coerce Iran into doing anything with that sort of mixture of of policies. Which is to say, this is not the recipe for capitulation. Absolutely. Of course, this being the Trump administration, it is entirely possible that Donald Trump issues a tweet tomorrow saying something pleasant about the government of Iran and we're at the negotiating table that next week. Be, that might be the strategy for capitulation. Okay, I'm gonna, that's very going to put an end on it. We're hoping now for a tweet from Donald Trump that takes the Iran conversation in a whole new direction. I love it. Fantastic. Um, Okay, thanks, Liz, so much for joining us today. Uh, We'd like to thank our producer, all-star Jeff Geld, and everyone at home for listening. Find us on Twitter at CatoFP to continue the conversation. 